Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another exciting episode of Through the Crypto. Today, we're talking New Jersey man operating his own unlicensed Bitcoin exchange. Then we got Andrew Yang, Super PAC will accept Lightning Bitcoin donations. And then finally, in the main topic, we're discussing Bitcoin's social contract. What does that mean? What are you talking about, Car? I'm talking about understanding the social layer of Bitcoin. All that and more through crypto, starting now. Boys and girls from around the world, welcome back to another exciting episode of Thriller Crypto. Today is July 25th, 2019, and I'm Car Gonzalez, and I am wondering what the hell is going on with all this news today. It seems like uh, everything that could go wrong is going wrong, and we're talking about it. We're talking about all of it. So first up, we got New Jersey Man Operates Unlicensed Bitcoin Exchange. That's right. His name is William Green, and he is from Old New Jersey wherever that is, and he has been charged by a federal grand jury on account of allegedly operating Bitcoin exchange and unlicensed transmissions of money via his so-called business, Destination Bitcoin. It was reported in a press release entitled Monmouth County Man Charged with Operating an Unlicensed Bitcoin Exchange. That's right. The website has accepted over $2 million in cash to turn such funds into Bitcoin for customers. It's a fiat on-ramp. Come on. With a fee for this service, while the press states William has to appear before a district judge, the date is yet to be revealed. But according to the U.S. Department of Justice, they expect that Green did not register either with his name or the name of his business with the Secretary of the United States Treasury as a money transmitting business. Therefore, he could be facing five years imprisonment and $250,000 fine. Gosh, that's harsh, man. It's just Bitcoin, baby. Next up, we got Andrew Yang. Super PAC will accept lightning-powered Bitcoin donations. That's right. This could be the first time, ladies and gentlemen, that the Lightning Network could be actually be used. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it officially impacts the U.S. presidential election. According to the latest report, it says that the Super PAC obviously wants to receive donations as large as possible. And there's no better way to do it than Lightning, baby. But at the same time, individuals who want to donate just a little bit to Yang's platform now have that opportunity with the Lightning Network. And they are hoping that this could increase, you know, more. How would you say? Bitcoin adoption, <laughs> maybe, but uh, they hope that additional regulatory requirements end up a uh, challenge. And hopefully, you know, in the future, you can have Bitcoin donations being accepted for a lot longer. Uh, currently, right now, he's only going to be accepting these Bitcoin donations for the first 21 days. But maybe maybe here soon when it finally gets to the 2020 election, maybe he'll be able to accept a little bit more. Oh, actually, you know what? So I'm at the website right now. Hang on real quick. I forgot. I forgot I was going to talk about this part. But, you know, I'm at the website right now. It looks like you can. Oh, wow. You can donate Bitcoin with open node. But get the KYC, baby. That's not that's not a thing I want to do. I don't want to KYC Andrew Yang. Give me your Bitcoin address. 
you know, DM it. Okay. Next up, we got Ripple. That's right. Ripple sold over $250 million worth of XRP in quarter two, 2019, amid spike in institutional involvement. That's right. I don't know why y'all surprised, but they sold $250 million worth of XRP. Uh, and, um, they probably invested it in Bitcoin. I'm just kidding. No, they probably used it to purchase, uh, you know, that stake in Western Union, I would imagine. Um, they didn't say exactly, but the, the involvement of these institutional investors in XRP tokens was said to have upsurged the sales benchmark from 61 million in Q1 to nearly 73%, reaching a soaring range of 107 million in Q2. In this report, Ripple also announced that it has raised in excess of 250 million in total sales during the second quarter of 2019, noting explicitly that the company would offer a reduced number of its token supply up for sale from now henceforth. And gosh, this just grinds my gears because we like they have this vast amount of XRP that they're just holding, right? And this escrow account or wherever they have it at. And it, it they're literally dumping it. We're probably not in the open markets, but they're dumping it. And they're over here using it <laughs> to pay for all these companies. And this is money just just printed just out of thin air. Oh, gosh. But on July 3rd, Xpring reported that since the inception of XRP about a year ago, it had spent over 500 million on XRP projects, adding that it would prioritize the creation of new XRP use cases through infrastructure developments and innovative projects, meaning give more money to celebrities, <laughs> give more XRP to celebrities, give more XRP to by old dinosaur technology companies. Who knows? Last piece of news. We have the judge, the main Los Angeles federal judge, has ruled that the AT&T mobility lawsuit has been rejected. He rejected the motion to dismiss the $224 million lawsuit. That's right. It was filed by BitAngels co-founder Michael Turbin, who claims that the telecom giant enabled the loss of $24 million worth of cryptocurrency to SIM hackers during January 2018. As previously detailed by Turbin's lawyers on January 7, 2018, Turbin's phone with his AT&T wireless number went dead because uh, there was subsequent discussions with the with the AT&T representatives and the employees that they had, uh, you know, done the old SIM hack and ported over that number and basically gave the wireless number to an imposter. And then at that point, we're able to confiscate all those bitcoins. This is why I say yourself a bitcoin wallet store it far far away bury it in a field 20 feet deep <laughs> come back for it in 30 in five years uh, i'm just kidding okay i think that's all i got that's all i got for news let's get on to interesting video of the day that's right i'm coming out the gate today thriller podcast interesting crypto video of the day You know, if there's one special character out there in the Bitcoin world, you know, there's there's an illuminating guy. He, he's a little bit all over the place. He's, uh, you know, ruffles some feathers. You know, he has Bitcoin, Bitcoin trillionaire, I think, at this point. <laughs> His name is Brock Pearson. He just recently uh, went on stage at Decentralizing the World, and he, he dropped some good knowledge there. Uh, check it out. And like the Internet as it was being developed in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the internet really didn't hit its groove until the mid-90s when the browser was created because you needed a sufficient amount 
of bridges, roads, and tunnels. You needed infrastructure before this was able to go mainstream, before consumers were able to access it. And so these last 10 years have really been about developing the underlying infrastructure to make these tools available to the masses. And so the question is, where are we in that process? Is this 1985, 1990, 1995? I'm of the opinion that this is our Netscape moment. We now have the infrastructure to launch scalable applications, decentralized applications on blockchain. And the things that we needed for that to happen is we needed blockchains that were scalable, you know, able to handle large user bases. We needed really fast blockchains that were low latency. The average person doesn't want to run on something that's slow just because it's decentralized. That's not the thing that motivates them. And we needed something with little to no friction. And we now have blockchains that have no fees. And so at this point, you can build just about anything on a blockchain that you can build on the traditional internet. It's my belief that what's happening here is going to be substantially larger than the internet that we use today. We're effectively building the new internet. And the future of the internet is in distributed applications, not just things like cryptocurrency. And so for those of you that don't know what a blockchain is, Think of the blockchain as the operating system. If you use an Apple phone, think of that as like the Apple operating system or iOS. And think of things like Bitcoin as the first application. And we are now just at the very beginning of seeing what this type of technology can do. And the things that I think are going to be biggest, the things that are going to drive mass adoption in the near term now that we can build these big scalable applications are going to be the same things that we use in the existing internet. It's going to be things like new social networks. You can now build Facebook using a blockchain, but where we, the end users, own all of our data. We control who has access to that data. We give permission, or we have to give our consent, essentially, for advertisers to access our data. And we might even be the beneficiary of any remuneration that occurs. Imagine a world in which you, the user, receive all of the revenues that are generated from your data and being aware of who has access to it. Is that something that you'd be interested in using? I think that most of us are. So I think that that's going to be a big, exciting thing to pay attention to. And I think over the course of the next year, we're going to see you know, the, the battle between the centralized social networks begin versus the decentralized networks that are fighting for privacy and consent and user participation in the revenues that are generated. Another example are going to be the things we use today. Messaging, for example. Right now, some of us are concerned about privacy yet again. Is your signal application, your telegram application, your WhatsApp application, your Skype, are those things secure? Do you know? No, you don't. You have to trust that those systems are doing what they tell you they're doing. Because of blockchain, because of the security layer that it enables, you can now build provably secure messaging systems where the company can't even access your data. Obviously, gaming is another exciting potential use case. Gaming has driven a lot of the technology sort of that we use today. Um, I'm one of the uh, uh, early contributors or uh, uh, founders of block one where EOS was created. Uh, EOS 
sold $4.1 billion worth of tokens in their crowd sale, making them the largest capital markets transaction or IPO-like transaction of last year. We took a billion dollars of that 4.1 and created a program called EOS VC to invest in companies or applications being built on top of that blockchain. Of the capital that's been deployed, about 50% of that has been into gaming applications. So I'm very excited about the decentralized games that you're going to be seeing over the course of the next year. So I think we are at that Netscape moment. And it's taken us 10 years to get to that point. So I'm very, very bullish on, call it, decentralized applications. So where are we at from a market's perspective? The crypto market's aggregate market cap today is $188 billion as of a few minutes ago. In late 2017, we got close to the trillion-dollar mark. And so we've gone from that bull market down into a bear market, not the first time, and we keep going through these cycles. I'm actually a big fan of when the crypto markets are down because it essentially purges the industry of a lot of the riffraff. It cleans out the players that are not building you know, the things that are going to be here for the long term, the people that are preying upon the uninformed because of it, the lack, we call it the asymmetry of information that exists here. But I'm very, very bullish. I never get into the business of making price predictions because it's very difficult to predict when the market is going to have, you know, when the market's going to move. But right now, I said that crypto winter is over, spring has come early, and I've been seeing groundhogs everywhere. And I'll give you one specific insider data point that leads me to believe this. Cambridge Associates, not to be confused with Cambridge Analytics, is an organization that recommends asset allocations for major institutions, pensions, endowments, major insurance companies. And about two months ago, Cambridge Associates suggested that institutions allocate about 30 basis points of their portfolio to like cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Cambridge Associates is perhaps the closest thing to the word of God to these institutions. A lot of institutions, the employees there get bonused based, based upon hitting the allocations recommended by Cambridge Associates, which means we're about to see the opening of the floodgates, probably about $300 billion of capital coming into the industry. It'll take some time, but that's one of the most significant things that ha has happened in our industry and leads me to believe that we're looking at a very bull market, both in terms of the applications that can be developed, and now it's been greenlit for major institutions to come in. We've only had 10 or 20, you know, the Harvard Endowment, for example, you know, Yale, only some of the smartest institutions have been allocating capital to this space, the Goldman Sachs's of the world. But now we're going to the fidelities. Now we're going to start to see the rest of the world's major institutions allocating capital to this space. So I'm very excited about it. And an interesting data point that's lost on most people is we start thinking about these numbers, 188 billion. Where are we at in terms of the markets? Think about like the Internet 1.0 or the dot-com boom. In the dot-com boom, tech stocks got to the point of having an aggregate market cap of $6.7 trillion. $6.7 trillion when this was an entirely Western phenomenon. And that number is not inflation-adjusted. Imagine when you're dealing with a global phenomenon and inflation-adjusted dollars. I think I could make a compelling argument it was more like $50 trillion. Yeah, I'm Brock just going maximum bull case scenario, right? I mean... He, he, he is saying truths there. I mean, it's it's something that we've been covering throughout the whole summer. It's just backed and what's going on with Earth's X. And 
TD Ameritrade and all that kind of stuff. And they're really building out this whole framework for these institutions to jump in. Um, they just started UA, UA testing here on Monday. So yeah. And then on top of that, we got Ethereum 2.0 launching early next year. Everything's kind of setting up for 2020 to be a really big, big year in crypto. But I know you want to talk about coins. I know you want to talk about prices. We got to do that. So let's do it. Coin Talk, starting now. It's time for Coin Talk, but before we jump into that, I just want to mention a couple things. Just a couple, just a couple. So as of right now, we are we are recording Thriller News, Thriller Crypto every week here on this subscription feed that you're getting, and then uh, we also have our newsletter. So our newsletter, if you go to our website thrillerx.com, you can sign up for our newsletter. It's free; it doesn't cost anything, right? Um, and what we're going to be doing there is releasing free shows. Right. So we have this thing called Substack and Substack's a, a great platform. They allow us to do newsletters and they allow us to do podcasts inside those newsletters. I know it's crazy technology. It's crazy to think about it, but we can do a podcast inside this newsletter. And so if you sign up for free, you get access to that podcast. The only thing is, is we're releasing three, sometimes four shows a week. And man, I'm on a roll, baby. I'm on a roll. <laughs> like, so, like some of the shows we, we've been covering here on the subscription side, it's just unbelievable. We're talking about all sorts of stuff, you know, either Facebook or Bitcoin, you know, massive growth or, you know, some kinds. We're talking about institutional implications and we're going inside on insights and everything. It, it's it's a mass, 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 mass assortment of different shows. At this point, I think we've already recorded one, two, three, four, close to 25 to 30 episodes. And that's just in two months. So we're, we're throwing a lot of content there. If you want to subscribe, it's free. It doesn't cost anything. But if you want to subscribe monthly, you get access to all these shows. And we're going to be giving out, you know, a couple shows a month for free. So get on there. Sign up. If you're already signed up with our newsletter from last year, then you're good to go. You're going to be receiving those shows automatically. But if you want to sign up, now, if you're new to the show, maybe I feel like there's some newbies out there. <laughs> if you're new to crypto, it's cool. Sign up. Doesn't cost you anything. Go to thrillerx.com or go to thrillercrypto.substack.com. It's free. OK, with that, we got to play our disclaimer. That's right. This thing here helps us because it tells everybody after this point, there's just we can't trust anything Car says. So roll the disclaimer, baby. Remember, Thriller Podcast does not give financial advice. He cannot tell the future, even if he thinks can. He is just some dude trying to save the world one Satoshi at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Coin Talk, my favorite part of the day. I'm sure it's yours, too. I'm sure. I'm sure it's yours, maybe. Maybe. Maybe not days like today when uh, we're in the red, right? We got a $9,743 Bitcoin. 
Looks good to me. That looks like a bond signal if I ever seen one. See, <laughs> card. This is this is why no one takes you seriously, man. This is why this is why you'll never be David Dave Ramsey. And investing it in Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just like to have fun. Jeez, everybody's so serious in this space. You're so serious, man. You're so serious, bro. You're so serious. Stop, bro. No, seriously. Like, you know what's really crazy is Tron. Like, Justin Sun has like nine lives, seriously, at this point. One more time. It's like, how many more people is he gonna scam? <laughs> seriously. I mean, if we look at the price of Tron, it's like at two cents. And and people are believing everything he's saying he apologized today <laughs> he literally apologized today and said he was sorry for shilling <laughs> he's sorry for over marketing it's like dude uh you've been doing that since you got in this space bro <laughs> like you did the same thing with btt like who's gonna believe you <laughs> at this point no one's gonna believe you justin no one's gonna believe you no one no one no <laughs> Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's at a certain point, you know, it's I feel like Tron has become the XRP of 2019 <laughs> at this point. <laughs> at this point, I mean, gosh, man, mistake after mistake after mistake. Like this bear market has been rough for them. Uh, gosh, sometimes it's just good not to do anything. <laughs> you know, when you're doing too much, just 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 leave it alone. Leave it alone. At this point, the way he's managing the Tron project, I think he'd, it'd be better off with anybody else managing it. <laughs> like, this guy is literally, you know, tanking this project into the ground. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, anyways, uh, I feel bad because there's a lot of people in this space that I, that I really like and enjoy talking to that are heavy into TRX and Tron. And I'm like, gosh, am I just that <laughs> just so outside the box thinking i don't know what it is i, I don't know what it is maybe y'all hold tron or trx and are bullish on it but you know i have a technology background and looking at the technologies just for what it is and you know diving into it i, I just realized that it's not it's 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 not what it says it is unfortunately and um yeah, it sucks, man. A lot of people are going to lose money to that. Okay, so we got Bitcoin, 9743. We got a total market cap of $269 billion. Got XRP at $0.31. Cents. Got Litecoin at $91. Got Bitcoin Cash at $297. Binance Coin at $28. Got Bitcoin SV at $157. Uh, got Seller at $0.08. Cents. Got Cardano at $0.05. Cents. So yesterday I was talking about on the... On Thriller Insights, no, actually, on Thriller Coin Talk yesterday, we were talking about how everything here is just bullish momentum. Like, we have a lot of bullish momentum, right? We have back UAT this week. We have Fidelity, you know, a couple months back, but now it's fully funded. It's, it's fully it's fully ready to go. We have ErisX. Uh, there's just so much that we're looking at here that just says all the right things, Right. From, from a new standpoint, from just a technology standpoint, from custodianship that we have, like everything is great. It's just that, like I said in the past, sometimes we're just a far, we're just far too ahead in the news. And I'm, I'm talking about just people in the crypto space. Like we, I, we tend to know things at least a month 
before everybody else finds out about it. And the perfect scenario for that is the April Bulls run, right? You know, we, we found out that Fidelity was launching in March. Everybody in the crypto space knew about it or heard mentions of it. Right now, we know something's going on with NASDAQ, possibly. But what I'm saying is we know things before it happens, and it just takes... It just takes a little while longer for everybody else to catch up. And I, I'm hoping later this year, I'm hoping after we get through August and we get into October and November and December when, because eventually what's going to happen is, is BAC's going to fully launch. Like, because right now it's just testing. Eventually it's going to fully launch. They're going to do a whole media blitz around it. It's going to be on CNBC. It's going to be on every news channel, finance channel, finance magazine, whatever, right? It's just going to be a, a, a massive amount of media exposure for Bitcoin, because that's going to be the very first, you know, digital asset that they're going to hold. So you're going to see that happen. And that's going to happen at the end of this quarter, third quarter. So once this happens at the end of their third quarter, which is, I believe it's September 29th, um, we're seeing ourselves line up here really, really well for everything taking off here in October, November, December. And this will lead us into a very nice, I think, holiday season. I'd be very shocked if we are back down to, you know, at 3K, like a lot of big, a lot of big uh, traders are predicting they're picking, they're, they're, they're saying we're getting back to 2K, 3K, 4K. At this point, I think the, the, the swings in momentum from Bitcoin going from 10.5 back down to 9.7 and, and, and then back up to 10.4 and back down to 9.8. The swings are way too close to call. I would I would stay away from trading at this point. You're going to get yourself just, you know, wrecked. Right. If you if you set the wrong stop loss, if you if you if you choose the wrong resistance level, you're just going to get massively, massively undercut. So right now, all I'm doing is just holding, waiting, you know, buying here and there where I can. And uh, I like I, I just feel like there's too many people expecting something to happen and bitcoin usually does the complete opposite right so see that time and time again in the space where people are saying oh it's gonna go down it has to go down 40 percent and you know maybe it'll get to like 32 percent or whatever it is and they're like that's not good enough we got to go even lower it, it, bitcoin's gonna do whatever it wants and it doesn't care like, that's just that's just the honest truth and this whole coin market cap is gonna be fine we saw alts running here yesterday and the day before and it looked great right and now they're massively <laughs> been pulled. So this market is going to get a little bit more trickier to handle here in the short term. But I think once we get in this full, you know, bullish scenario in October, November, December, I think once we get there, I think we'll be fine. I think at that point, you're going to see the, the value, you know, you know, 5x, 2x here pretty fast. And at that point, there's going to be no stopping it, right? Because we're going to have the having leading up into May and then that's going to take off. That's going to be a catalyst. Right. And then you're going to have a lot more, you know, hopefully dApps out there for Ethereum and EOS and other applications. Maybe even Tron <laughs> has some gambling apps out there. Who knows? But there's there's going to have to be some kind of use case out there for 2020 uh, when it comes to cryptocurrency. And we don't know what it is. Maybe it's a crypto kitties part two. Who knows? But this 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 uh, this operational base of cryptos has to take off from a, from a very much a, a root level. And so we'll see what happens. I'm bullish on this whole space. As you know, I'm always going to be bullish. And uh, hopefully here pretty soon, we'll kind of go into like which alts I see running here in 2020. But right now, I haven't seen too much, too many alts like do a very good job of just kind of, you know, reinventing itself. It feels like I feels like like most of these alts have just kind of 
kind of waited it out, um, if I'm being completely honest. But we'll see what happens. I do know right now the hottest thing in the space is hard currencies like Bitcoin, like Litecoin, like Ethereum, you know, true decentralized digital assets, right? I know, I know, I know Bitcoin is the decentralized coin and, and calling those other ones or whatever. But I'm just saying as far as what institutional buyers are looking at, what regular people are looking at, they're looking at these hard currencies, right? They want the hard currencies. They don't want, you know, the the, uh, the XRPs. Maybe they do want XRP, but I'd be very shocked. You know, they don't want the XRPs. They don't want the, uh, the, the Stellars. They don't want the Trons. They don't want the Cardanos. They want the Moneros. They want the Dashes, right? They want the Litecoins. They want the Ethereums. And let's hope they don't want the XRPs. <laughs> but uh, what I will say is... Uh, it's, it's going to be one hell of a ride. So buckle up, buy some more Bitcoin. OK, today we are talking Bitcoin's social contract and we're going to dive into it. I think what I'm trying to do here lately is just we have a lot of new people in the space right now entering in. And I want to make sure that we get back to the fundamentals and covering something like this is very important. So let's do it. Main topic starting now.
Bitcoin is a novel and social and economic institution. It is so different from our existing institutions that we should probably be skeptical and ask as many hard and pressing questions as possible because the social layer and its rules are the heart of Bitcoin. I'm not here to give you a lesson on money as a social contract, but make no mistake, throughout history, governments that controlled money have abused their power in all kinds of ways. They confiscated amounts, blocked certain people or groups from transacting. They even tried printing more money and inflated the supply, sometimes to the point of hyperinflation. When governments crossed the line in abusing their power, the people lost trust in that social contract called money. That is until Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin. He did not invent a new social contract. He didn't need to. He leveraged technology to solve many problems of past implementations and implemented the old contract in a new and better way with math. There is, at some level, an, an understanding, I think, between the people who belong in society and those who make the rules. And the people who make the rules are beholden to us, and, and to some degree we're beholden to them. This is the beginning of the comprehension of what a social con contract is. Um, the term social contract came uh, into popularity, ironically, uh, at, at the middle end of the South Seas bubble in the early 18th century. Uh, 1715, I think, is when it's largely credited. This concept had been around since Plato, I think, but uh, it wasn't starting to be uh, articulated, apparently, until that time. And that led into the American and French Revolution, wherein we looked at these monarchies, and I'm not saying that any of the Bitcoin par parties are monarchies, but I'm just saying we looked at these monarchies, and what we saw was that perhaps they had an obligation to us as citizens, and what, what is that obligation, and, and why do we have these revolutions, and, and what is it that we deserved, and how could we do better? And I think that some of those things apply here. The gist of what a social contract is, is quite simple. If you surrender some of your freedom to government, you receive increased security. And that's very important. I think that that's a very rational trade-off. Trade I think in the Bitcoin space, like, people are really weirded out by uh, any form of governance, in, in part because of the decentralization moral. I've been a Bitcoin, Bitcoin maximalist for my entire uh, Bitcoin career, and that was very easy up until the point at which Bitcoin started to fracture. Um, I now label myself a secular Bitcoiner, and I think that much of what you hear comes from the secular uh, comprehension that I'd like to think that I have. I don't know that I, I do or that that's entirely possible, but I would invite you at least to consider that that might be possible. And what might that look like? Um, I, th I think that the change is needed for a lot of reasons. I, I think that most people didn't really look at Bitcoin from the morality of Bitcoin in the sense that I do. They don't look at it in a moral context. And I, I think that for most of my platform, there was never a need to do so up until recently. And looking at a lot of the changes that have happened in the space, I, I think that this perspective is a little bit more predictive. I think that by the time we get to the end of this, you might find some lessons for yourself in evaluating other projects, which I think is really the big advantage of this framework. And hopefully you can take some of these comprehensions into your own projects if you have them in blockchain. If we all come here believing that blockchain is good, we don't have to spend time hashing out the virtues of that system. And we can do similar types of assessments on other morals that we have. These rectified truths that we believe enable us to 
um, share understandings and grow with people of a like mind and keep us from getting in the weeds, I think, allow us to specialize and further the group. I, I can trust that I don't need to know everything about C++. I can trust this person to give me some beliefs that I can carry with me. And uh, that is, in fact, an efficiency because now I can work on other things. I don't have to worry about learning that side. And perhaps the guy who knows C++ very well then doesn't have to worry about learning, um, I don't know, how to ship post on, on Reddit or something like that, which might be your function. Uh, we didn't know this, but if you think really hard, perhaps the people that we trust, the people that we liked, were the people that were in compliance with our beliefs. Uh, perhaps we like Andreas Antonopoulos because he comports with the decentralization is good moral and uh, so on and so forth. People in the community will create faith in themselves through you by way of their compliance with your pre-existing beliefs. And in doing so, they can then use that as a springboard to promote new beliefs. And, and these are good systems, I think. It's a little bit antithetical to some of the, the Bitcoin purity that uh, we have these social dynamics. But I think, again, in 2017, that is the lesson at some level. And we'll get into that. And yeah, I, I think that once you perhaps consider those, those tenets, uh, we can start to think of blockchain differently. Um, I used to think of blockchain as a value routing system, as the first internet system for delivering value uh, to others. But now I'm kind of looking at it a little differently. I'm saying, you know what, maybe, maybe it's a faith routing system. You take, let's say, the faith in the, the one, you then convert that faith into the faith that it, it doesn't even be your community, but a community has in Bitcoin. And then maybe what you want is the faith of uh, the American public. You want to hold U.S. dollars. Well, you convert your Bitcoin into that faith, the U.S. dollar faith. Um, I think it's a good operable framework for a bunch of reasons. It explains a lot, that's for sure. I think that it explains things like the gold standard. Uh, for a lot of the libertarians, we've you know, decried the, the, the dissolution of the gold standard in America. But maybe what was going on was that we had faith in gold, and we had some component of that faith built into the faith in the dollar, and then at the point at which the dollar divorced itself greatly, there was more faith in the dollar than there was in the gold. We didn't need it anymore. That's, that's the training wheels uh, sort of theory. And, and that does kind of make sense. Uh, I don't know if there are, is an analog here in the Bitcoin space. I think in, in side chains, there is this hope that you can back your side chain with the faith in Bitcoin to, to uh, spool up a project quicker. Rather than starting with zero faith, you at least have the faith that is the underlying asset. I think, I think too, that this really works for like understanding money. Like Every year in this space, I have a different definition of what money is. And money started off as this immutable thing. It was this like holy uh, artifact that I never questioned as a kid. And then with Bitcoin, I started to say, like, wait a second, that is, I think now that was immoral, that the dollar is good, that the dollar can't be changed, that the dollar is whatever. And now we're starting to see all the different constituent parts of our currencies, and we're starting to take lessons and apply them into the construction of new assets and new currencies. Um, and I think that probably now the way I see money is as a quantization of faith. You have a degree of faith in society that is ascribed to you by your holding of, say, dollars. So you work for your dollars. You are given, I don't know, $100 a day. And obviously, you guys are all from different countries, euros, whatever. Um, that is, to some degree, the amount of equity that you put into your society, sweat equity. And in exchange, what you received was uh, a holy piece of paper, a faith-based system. It's just a piece of paper. It's got a nice logo on it, and it's counterfeit proof. But it is a, a piece of paper that says to the, a, a complete and total stranger, I've received this much faith uh, from my government or from society, and I give this, this to you, and you can do the same thing in turn. And 
when we're looking at a lot of these assets, I think that that's going to be very important for understanding what makes for a good asset and what makes for a bad asset in, at the very least, a cryptocurrency model. Satoshi Nakamoto settled on four distinct rules. Confiscation resistance, censorship resistance, inflation resistance, and counterfeit resistance. Essentially, this means the owner of Bitcoins can hold keys to the currency without it being taken away. And the owner can also transact on the network without permission. An owner of any Bitcoin of any amount knows that the protocol has a limited supply. And last but not least, anyone can verify the first three rules at any time using the transparent and public blockchain. No confiscations, no censorship, no inflation. Anyone can verify the first three rules. These are the rules of Bitcoin. Bitcoin expresses a new thing, a thing that has rules without rulers. And for people, this is a very confusing concept, because most everything we've seen before, rules come from rulers. And you trust the rules because you trust the rulers, what we call appeal to authority. Of course, appeal to authority is known as a cognitive bias. It is a bug in our brain software. It makes us discard logic and reasoning in favor of attribution and authority. It makes us associate as tribes, teams, and political parties, and make decisions based on whether the person expressing authority or ideas is part of our tribe or part of the enemy tribe. And we all know that the enemy tribe has always been an enemy, is up to no good, and is trying to destroy this beautiful world. Always. The problem is, of course, that everybody who belongs to the enemy tribe thinks that we are up to no good, <laughs> and we are trying to destroy the world. You see this emerging in every sphere of human existence. And of course, you see it emerging in the conversations around Bitcoin and many of the other open blockchains. People find it very difficult to accept the idea that a system can exist with rules and without rulers, a system without authority, a system in which it doesn't matter who is most popular or what opinions they have, because they are unable to change the rules. And I think that was demonstrated resolutely, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, culminating, of course, two days ago, when the rules were not changed. Again, the rules were not changed. And this time, there was a very large group of people who had a different opinion about the rules. Their opinion was not right. Their opinion was not wrong. Their opinion was opinion. And in Bitcoin, opinions are not judged. 
based on who holds them. What matters is whether they can reach consensus with the overwhelming majority of participants in the system. And if they cannot reach consensus with the overwhelming majority of the people in the system, it doesn't matter how much money they have, how much authority they have, how much popularity they have. And that's how it should be. Now, a lot of people looked at what happened a week ago and said, okay, Bitcoin Core won. Victory. Which is not true. Bitcoin Core did not win. Bitcoin Core happened to be with the side of consensus, or at least with the size of the status quo. And if you don't have overwhelming majority to change the rules, the system ensures that the rules remain the same. So all you have to do in the system is follow the rules, the rules that exist today. And if you want to change the rules, you'd better have overwhelming consensus, otherwise the system will punish you financially in many cases. And everyone who tries to change the rules without overwhelming majority loses. Core didn't win. They just didn't try to change the rules without overwhelming consensus, and as a result, the rules were not changed. We will see these battles happen again and again and again. In fact, the battles we see so far are tiny compared to what's coming. Ivan talked about creating regulations so that people can trust and invest and participate without fear. Regulations are the way we used to run governance in systems where there are rulers, because regulations are created by regulators. Those are rules with rulers. Good news is they can't change the rules of Bitcoin, because they do not have consensus. There will be regulations, but there will be regulations only of the systems surrounding open blockchains not of open blockchains themselves, because open blockchains themselves already are regulated by mathematics, by overwhelming consensus, by network-based rules. These are not systems without regulations. These are systems with very predictable, deterministic, clear, transparent regulations based on mathematics. Regulations not subject to political power, not subject to compromise, discussion, change. Money in general, and Bitcoin in particular, can be seen as social contracts between people in society. Bitcoin is not a new contract either. It's just a new implementation of a contract that can be traced back hundreds of years. In comparison to previous attempts, the Bitcoin implementation is a dramatic improvement because it creates a hyper-competitive market for its own security. Bitcoin's social layer and the protocol layer are mutually reinforcing. When the Bitcoin software successfully automates the rules of the social contract, the two layers are synchronized. And when the software temporarily goes out of sync, 
it always has a social contract as a guiding beacon of light to return to. Um, yeah, I've, I, I got some flack on Reddit and Twitter for talking about governance in a very kind of broad way. And when I say governance, I don't mean government. Um, I think we're governed by all sorts of things. You know, we're governed by our government. We're governed by the laws of physics. Uh, we're governed by social norms. You know, there are all these things that affect our behavior and, and what we do. And that's what really I mean by governance is, you know, some some effect on, you know, what we do, how we behave, or how a technology behaves, you know, how a technology works. That's all, that all fits into my kind of general idea of, of governance. And when I think about governance issues, I really think about all of those things. I think about, you know, what's possible with the laws of physics, you know, what's possible with kind of social norms, um, what's possible with governments, right? I mean, also, you know, I think if you really want to think about Governance, you have to think about kind of all those different levels. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people, when they hear governance, they immediately go to, you know, the, a, a, a nation state governing and deciding, you know, what you can and can't do. And that really isn't what I mean when I say governance. I think the, the, the problem is different people have different ideas about what the governance process ought to be, or even what it is, or even what it was. Um, if you go back in history, it, it was really simple. It was whatever Satoshi decided at the beginning. And you know, that's really where we started. We had one, one, one source code. We had one pseudonym person uh, who made all the decisions about you know, what should Bitcoin be? Uh, how should it evolve? What should it do? Um, you know, that's where we started. You know, as soon as Satoshi kind of step back and and threw the project onto my shoulders um, one of the first things I did was to try to kind of decentralize that so that if I got hit by a bus you know it would be clear that the project would would go on um, and so um, and I think Bitcoin will be going through a similar evolution right I, I think we will evolve past just there being one reference implementation that everybody uses I think it's it's natural for things to specialize so uh, you know, the code that Satoshi wrote was a miner, it was a wallet, it was a full node, it, you know, it did everything in one package. And I think he had to do it that way because you wouldn't want to download six different pieces of code uh, to be an early adopter because you did need a wallet and you probably did want to mine and you probably, you know, you definitely wanted to be part of the network. Um, but as Bitcoin gets bigger, kind of, we're seeing the pieces specialize. So you're seeing you know, the Bitcoin reference implementation is not the wallet that most people use anymore. Most people are using a, a lightweight wallet on their phone. I have three or four white light, lightweight wallets on my phone. I have you know hardware devices that are Bitcoin wallets. Um, and that kind of specialization is, is good and it's natural. And we're gonna see that at kind of all layers of the Bitcoin stack. So you know, I think we will see an implementation of the code that's targeted just at miners or mining pool operators that you know has super fast validation make sure that blocks propagate insanely quickly um, 
you know, they just kind of focus on kind of what do miners and mining pool operators need in terms of software. Um, and I don't think that'll be the reference implementation. I don't think the, I think the reference implementation will continue to be kind of trying to do everything for everybody. Um, and so I think you, we will see it, this natural evolution of, you know, it won't just be the one piece of code. There will be you know, lots of different pieces of code implementing the, the Bitcoin protocol. At this point, it's important to understand that the Bitcoin token itself has no value. It's nothing more than a number and a decentralized ledger. The value exists purely on the social layer. And that's Bitcoin's social contract. I want to give a huge thanks to Chris DeRose, Hasu, a cryptocurrency researcher, Andreas Antonopoulos, and of course at the end, Gavin Andreessen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that main topic. I had a lot of fun putting it together. It's something that doesn't really get talked a lot about um, in the space, uh, Bitcoin social contract, but it's definitely something that uh, we all should keep in mind when we transact. Okay, with that, let's get on to the end of the show.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Thriller Crypto. Bitcoin social contract, baby. <laughs> no, seriously, I had a lot of fun putting it together. I mean, it's doing deep dives like this that really gets me to fully understand Bitcoin at a much deeper level than I did before. So I'm grateful for it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow we got on a Thriller Insight, so be sure to subscribe at thrillercrypto.substack.com or thrillerx.com. Bye, Bitcoin. See the world. This is the end of the show. You have been listening to Killer Podcast with Car Gonzalez. Remember, Thriller Podcast is not financial advice. Everything Car said likely won't come true. It is up to you. Now go do your own research. Listen to other dudes that start their name with crypto and not car. And remember, buy Bitcoin and save the world, one Satoshi at a time.